The following is a message by Dr. Julius Kim of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Dude, I'd like to uh, encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we begin our faculty series on the use of the Psalms in the New Testament. And I'd like to begin this series by drawing your attention to the Apostle Paul's use of one of the Psalms in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 13, but the allusion to Psalm 78 actually comes in verse 4. So the reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, with special attention to verse 4. Listen carefully, for this is God's word. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. And drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. May the Lord bless to us the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Something that brings me great joy almost every day is to watch videos with my daughters. And some of you who have children know what I'm talking about. I think at this point I must have seen The Lion King at least 74 times, maybe 75. And as a result, I get to memorize a lot of the lines and the scenes, and I won't go into a parody of, of any of the lines, although they are quite funny. And, but I do want to, if some of you have seen this movie, perhaps you might remember this scene. Do you remember little Simba, the little Lion King, had a problem? He had an identity problem. After he thought he had killed his father, he ran away from everything that he knew and loved. He ran away from Pride Rock. He ran away from the Pride Lands. 
only to find this idyllic, peaceful land where he met two faithful friends who taught him the philosophy of Hakuna Matata. No worries. So he had finally found peace at last until that one fateful day where his old friend and lioness, remember her, Nala? Nala came to pay him a visit. And Nala reminded him of who he really was. He was the king. Simba, you're the king. You've got to go back. You've got to, go You've got to take your place back in Pride Lands. But there was a problem, wasn't there? He didn't want to leave this idyllic land where Hakuna Matata reigned. And he didn't want to go back and certainly fight Uncle Scar and all these hyenas. But there was another problem. No matter how persuaded Nala was that Mufasa could do the job, Mufasa didn't believe it in himself. He was troubled in his own heart and mind of who he was. So what to do to motivate Simba to go back? Well, his father reminded him in this dream. He came back to him in a dream. Do you remember King Mufasa in that great voice of James Earl Jones? And in this great dream, he comes back to Simba and he says, Simba, remember who you are. Remember that? He reminded Simba of his true identity, that he was the son of the king. And even though Simba wasn't fully convinced of it, he was motivated enough by that reminder that reminder that he was the son of the king. Now what's interesting here, I don't take a lot of examples from Disney movies to, to jump into our scripture, but, but I found that to be a, a, an insightful way of, of thinking about what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 10. You see, Paul's talking to this fledgling church in Corinth who are struggling with their own problems of identity. Here they are, a very gifted, a very powerful church exercising a lot of spiritual gifts, as you know, but a very problematic church too, weren't they? They were falling into idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord. So what is Paul going to do to motivate them to get back on track? What does he do? He reminds them of who they are. They are sons of the king. How does he do that? He does that by taking them back to the Psalms the experience these Israelites themselves had because they themselves forgot who they were. And so here in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 specifically, set within this larger passage of verses 1 through 13, Paul continues his exhortation that he began in chapter 9. Remember back in chapter 9, he uses this imagery of running the race and beating the flesh. He, he, he exhorts these believers in Corinth to self-denial and effort in order to secure the crown of life. And here in the opening verses of chapter 10, he enforces that exhortation by showing through the example, example of the Israelites how disastrous such lack of self-control was for them. I mean, just briefly look down in, in what, he's, what he does here in the argument in verses 1 through 13. He says, after all, just like the Corinthian Christians, they, that is the Israelites, were highly favored and loved. The Israelites had witnessed with their very lives God's powerful hand upon their lives. The Red Sea opening and closing upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God showering manna upon them so they could eat. Turning bitter water into sweet. 
And yet, even though they were highly favored, and God tangibly showed them his favor to them, many of them never made it to the promised land. And so Paul warns these Christians in verse 6 not to give in to the temptation of forgetting God, as the Israelites did. In verse 7, he says, don't be led into idolatry. In verse 8, nor into sexual immorality. In verse 9, don't test the Lord, nor grumble, verse 10. All of these examples from the experience of the Israelites served as a warning to Christians, especially to those that thought they were standing firm, lest they fall, verses 11 and 12. And he concludes this section in verse 13 by reminding them of God's mercy, who continues to support them in the midst of suffering and trial. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to cover the entire passage here. But what we can do is look at the way the apostle alludes to a psalm in making his point. In fact, the psalm from which Paul draws these points is itself very similar in the goal that Paul has. Paul was a careful biblical theologian. And so we have to go back to Psalm 78. And so go back to Psalm 78. As as a psalmist exhorts his readers, very similarly to the apostle Paul, the psalmist exhorts his readers to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling since God had birthed them and had adopted them as his very own children. And so if you turn to Psalm 78, you'll notice that there are two themes that coincide with what Paul is exhorting in 1 Corinthians 10. First, on the one hand, the psalmist declares, and we don't have the time to get through each verse here, On the one hand, the psalmist declares how God adopted for himself a people from the posterity of Abraham and how tenderly and graciously he cherished it. How wonderfully he brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. Indeed, throughout the psalm, the psalmist reveals how varied the blessings were that God bestowed upon Israel. But there's another theme here. The Israelites who are so indebted to God for the great blessings which he conferred upon them are scolded and are warned for taking that love for granted. And how so often they rebelled from the goodness and patience of their loving and heavenly, loving heavenly father. And these two themes make sense. Even if you look at Psalm 78 in the larger book of the Psalter, See, Psalm 78 is found in book 3 of the Psalter that starts in Psalm 78 and goes to Psalm 89. All of the Psalms in this section has a general theme of this crisis that the king has over God's promises. Yes, God promised to be there for them. And yet, why are we encountering such trouble? Encountering such trouble. And this is a very real problem, not just for the Israelites, not just for the Corinthians, but for you and I, isn't it? There's a crisis, all right, at the very first sign of difficulty, trial, temptation, how quickly the Israelites turned away from their faithful God. And this was the warning the Apostle Paul wanted to give to the Christians in Corinth who were facing the same challenges. And so what does Paul do specifically to motivate them to remain steadfast? Paul reminds them of God's unfailing love for them by taking them back to the spiritual rock, the rock of ages that we just sang about. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4 alludes to Psalm 78.15. Psalm 78.15 that says, He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought water, he brought streams, verse 16, out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10.4 alludes to Psalm 78.15. I think what's instructive for us at this point is to remember the event that both Psalm 78 and 1 Corinthians 10.4 alludes to. Psalm 78.15 comes primarily from Exodus 17, but also from Numbers 20. And since we don't have time to look at both passages, I want to take just a brief look at Exodus 17. So we can get a better handle on how Paul uses this event and then uses Psalm 78 to remind the Corinthian Christians of God's unfailing love for them so that they would remain steadfast and not turn away from God. What does he do? I don't have time to read the entire passage, but you know this passage. It's that famous event where Moses is wandering with the Israelites in the desert. And they encounter in the desert thirst. It's no surprise. It's a hot and arid place. And so the people come to Moses and demand a divorce. Here in Psalm 17, this is no ordinary event in the history of the Israelites. At first blush, it appears to be just another marvelous miracle that God provides sustenance during the wilderness journey. But as you will soon see, something more serious is happening here. And as a legal drama unfolds, it demonstrates something more serious than just their thirst being at stake. This story reveals to us both the severity of their sin as well as the enormity of God's gracious response. And this is what Paul uses as a motivation to Christians who are tempted to stray. Ed Clowney helps us as he demonstrates that this is no ordinary drama. Verse 2 sets the scene for us. The people of God actually bring an accusation. This is no ordinary argument or complaint. The Hebrew word used here for complaint is the Hebrew word reeve. And as you well know in Old Testament scripture, it's used in, in the connotation of covenant lawsuit. There's a legal connotation. They're not just complaining that they don't have thirst. They actually bring a lawsuit against Moses. What's the charge here that they bring? The charge is actually treason. A failure to uphold the contract. A failure to uphold the promise. A failure to uphold the covenant. After all, is God really for us? We're about to die. Furthermore, in verse 4, Moses is afraid of what? Moses is afraid of stoning. You don't get stoned. When people are just thirsty and they're, and they're angry over thirst. You get stoned when you're charged for treason, for breaking a promise. So something serious is happening here. And instead of leaving the future to chance, what do the Israelites do? You know what? We're going to die and not just us but our children. Now let's not be too harsh on them. This is pretty serious. Their hearts are troubled. They're about to die. Their children are about to die. Their livestock are about to die. And so instead of leaving the future up to chance, they said, God, we want out of this relationship. We want to control our own future. So the charge is recorded. Treason, 
I want out of the relationship. What happens next? Moses is told in verse 5 by God to walk on ahead of the people with his staff and with the elders. Why is this significant? Again, a legal context here. The staff that Moses brings is important. Because a staff which was used, as it says here in the text, to judge Egypt, when he struck the Nile, turning it into blood, will be used again to bring judgment. The elders are also significant because they form a court of witnesses. When, when the verdict will be rendered. Everyone knows the verdict is guilty for treason because Moses takes this staff. But who's the guilty party? The charge has been recorded treason. The verdict is guilty. What's next? If it's guilty, you have to sentence the guilty party. Verse 6 then reveals the triumph of God's grace as a sentence is executed. God tells his servant to strike the rock. But two seemingly insignificant words appear before this command. God says, I will go before and I will stand on the rock. Why is this significant? In the Old Testament, who goes before the judge? The criminal. The one who's going to be sentenced. God says he will go before. And when God strikes the rock, isn't it significant, God, that when God says, I will stand on the rock, why are these significant? It's the Israelites who are guilty of abandoning God. At the very first sign of trouble, when tempted to turn their back on God, they turn. Jeremiah was right, wasn't he, when he said, our hearts are so deceitful. Who can know it? And so they turn their back on God, betray the relationship. They're the guilty party. But what does God do? Amazingly, he says he will take their place. And so God strikes, Moses strikes the rock on which God stands. And what's the result? Water pours out onto that desert floor. What water? Life-sustaining water. And see, this is what Paul is referring to when he motivates these Christians who are tempted to turn their back on God. Tempted by the idols, not just around them in pagan Corinth, but even the idols in their own heart. The idols that say, you don't need God, serve yourself, you control your own future. The idols of self-sufficiency. Over and against that, Paul says, remember what God did for you in Christ. Just like the Israelites, God provided them life-sustaining water. When even in the midst of their sin, God provided a way out. And so you too, Christian. When you're tempted, when you're undergoing trials of tremendous pressure, we all know. And if you're honest with yourself, you've been there too. Just three months ago, I lost my niece. She was 11 years old. How do you make sense of, of crises like that when an 11-year-old girl dies for apparently no reason? It's times like that when we're tempted to turn away from God, aren't we? And it's at times like that when I need to read passages like 1 Corinthians 10.4 and be reminded of that rock, to go to that rock, to trust in that rock, to rely upon that rock. For you know what? When I go to that rock and drink from that bountiful river of life that flows from the throne of God, where the Lamb of God sits, I will thirst no more. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for the reminder for how we need it. For the reminder that this rock is not just any old rock, but this rock was Christ. And just as Israel drank from that rock and lived, we thank you that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that by his death upon that cross, where blood and water flowed from his side, we might be redeemed, we might be rescued from the sin and misery that so entangles us. And we thank you for the reminder that he is now ours. And so now, Lord, help us by your spirit to go to that Christ, to look to that Christ, to rely upon that Christ. For as we do this, the blood of Christ will cleanse us of our sins. And the spirit of Christ will strengthen us to remain faithful and steadfast. This is our desire, to remain faithful to you. Help us, Lord, to do this as we go to the rock, the rock of ages. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.